The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Uh, If this is your first time with us, my name is Scott Sauls. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Presbyterian. It's my privilege to uh, give the sermon this morning, and now I'm going to read Uh, The same story uh, from the English Standard Translation of the Bible, and uh, it's from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So uh, two quick announcements for you before I get into the sermon. First, uh, you may already uh, have caught wind of this. But uh, the service, the online Sunday service, is now available starting at 6 a.m. every Sunday. And we've done this, even though we still want everyone who can, to gather together in what we're calling citywide online worship at 10 a.m. each Sunday. Uh, We also realize that that for some households, this presents challenges with kids and nap times and, and things of that sort. And so we're trying to be as accommodating as we can. So from six in the morning all the way through the day and even beyond that, uh, these services are available. Uh, But whenever you're listening, we're so glad that you've joined in with us. And uh, I mentioned another announcement, which I'm actually going to make at the end of my sermon. So uh, I'll just uh, give you a little teaser there. Uh, And uh, now we'll focus on our text. One of the great misconceptions about Jesus Christ is if you start believing in him, if you give your life to Christ, then he's going to lead you out of every storm. And the fact of the matter is that oftentimes he does the opposite. He leads his people into and through the storm time and time again from the very beginning. Uh, We see this uh, in the book of Exodus when he leads the entire nation of Israel through a storm that was so powerful that that it created walls of waves. And the nation of Israel walked through those walls of waves. How terrifying that must have felt. Uh, But they walked through those waves to their freedom and away from the oppression of the Egyptian pharaoh. In Job chapter 12, we see Job saying that storms overwhelm the land. The Psalms talk about the raging sea, the stormy wind, and the waves that melt our courage. Jonah 
talks about a deadly storm. The book of Jonah does. A deadly storm at the sea. And here the disciples are also caught in a storm in the middle of a small boat. And they say to the sleeping Jesus who's in the boat with them, don't you care? We are perishing. Now, more than bad weather, this whole theme of the storm is actually a metaphor for the human condition. To be human is to face storm after storm after storm after storm. And one single storm hits different people in different ways. You might have noticed in verse 36 that it says that it wasn't just Jesus and his disciples going out on their boat. It says that other boats were with them, which means that other people are experiencing the storm as well and possibly in different ways. COVID-19 and all of the ripple effects of COVID-19 is a storm that so many in the human race are enduring right now. And in that storm, there are an assortment of fears. Uh, The Atlantic actually came out with an article just this past Thursday. And the title of that article was, We Are All Afraid of Different Things. And it goes on to talk about how healthcare workers are afraid of getting infection or of being incapable of treating Uh, all of the disease that comes into the hospitals and doctor's offices. Teachers are afraid that they can't help their students. Students, many of them, especially those who are about to graduate, are afraid of their future. High school students are afraid that they might have to homeschool their first semester of college. What a terrifying thought that might be. College graduates are afraid of the job market that they are walking into uh, in the near future. Business leaders and investors are afraid that we might be in for another Great Depression. Pastors fear the future of their churches. Suicide hotlines are receiving exponentially higher uh, numbers of calls these days because people not only fear dying, they fear living. The closing line of this Uh, article in the Atlantic says this, consider these fears with compassion, knowing that we are all worried. We are all worried because we're in a small boat that can't handle the storm. And, And what we see here in our text is Jesus confronting two storms. The first storm is the storm outside of us, which really could be summarized in, you know, the thought of 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 our human condition being unmanageable by us. So there's a storm outside of us, but then there's a storm inside of us called fear. And so today I want to talk about three forms of fear. The fear of death, the fear of life, and the fear of God, which calms all other fears. But let's start with the fear of death. In verse 38, the disciples say to Jesus very assertively, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And then Jesus responds to them, Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Now, anyone who's a a human being who's been caught in any kind of storm knows that it's understandable to be afraid because this storm was unmanageable, which means that there is only one likely outcome to the disciples, and that is that it's over. And anytime we, 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 we actually are forced to face 
death head on, we realize that we are facing something that is not natural. It's not meant to be part of the life that God created for us. You know, in the famous Broadway play and Disney movie and story, The Lion King, uh, the young lion is told to go eat an antelope. And the young lion is very upset by this because he doesn't want to eat the antelope, because he doesn't want to hurt the antelope. And his father comes alongside him and says, well, you need to eat the antelope because lions fertilize the grass and antelopes eat the grass So we're all connected in the great circle of life. Talk about a positive spin on a devastating reality. The poet Dylan Thomas says that this is dishonest sentimentalism, this kind of talk that death is just a part of life. It's not a part of life. It's not meant to be a part of life. It's an invasion. It's, it's, it's violence toward life, death is. It's, it's what the Bible calls our last enemy. It's something that Jesus raged at when he saw it and when he experienced it. You know, Dylan Thomas said, we should rage against the dying of the light. Raging at death is not an indication that you don't have faith. It's actually an indication that you do. Specifically, you have faith in the world as it's meant to be. And death is a violation. It is a vandal. Death is vandalism against the life for which God created the world and humans. It's a right feeling to rage against it. We see this as Mary gets furious at death. Or she gets sad about death, and, and, and Martha gets furious about death when their, their brother Lazarus is in the tomb. And, and Jesus shares both of their emotions when he arrives at the tomb of Lazarus, who was Jesus' friend. He's both angry, furious actually, and sad. It says that Jesus wept. On the cross, Jesus cries out to God in protest. The first verse of the 22nd Psalm Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the one and only time that he didn't refer to God as Father when he addressed him directly. Instead, he called him a less personal name, God. Why have you forsaken me? Death is not natural. Death is, raging at death is understandable, but it's also a universal thing, death is. You know, this statement from the disciples, we are perishing, that's actually a statement that every single one of us can say right now. We might be in the safety of a home right now or of a living room or on a a back patio. But we can say right now, whether we are age 90 or whether we are age 9, I am dying. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. I am dying. This is the truth about the human condition. And none of us is escaping it. Look around the room that you're in. Maybe there's one of you. Maybe there's ten of you in that room. The youngest person in the room. That person's days are numbered. You know, the disciples are young. They're healthy. They're not thinking about death. They're unprepared to face it. And that's revealed in their their panic. And their anger with God. 
See, with the first years of somebody's life, especially if they don't experience a lot of storms, if they don't experience a lot of um, you know, sickness, if they're not encountering death on a regular basis, it's very easy to deny death, to put the thoughts about death off. But the truth of the matter still is we are all perishing. You know, I've shared with our congregation a while ago that I got my first invitation to join this organization called AARP. It's an organization specifically for old people. It came to me on my 50th birthday, and I've gotten an invitation every year since. I'm 52 now, so I've gotten three invitations every time. They've offered me a, 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 a membership that doesn't cost much, and it comes with a free sporty tote. I do not want that free sporty tote. I do not want to be part of AARP because I still don't want to admit that I'm dying. And to admit that I'm old means to admit that I'm terminal. I am perishing. We are perishing. You know, Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher, said that we must preach as dying men to dying men and women. I'm a dying man. I'm preaching to dying people right now. Why? Because the wages of sin, as Romans tells us, is still death. And so Jesus doesn't rebuke them because they dislike death or because they're acknowledging its reality. He rebukes them because of their unbelief around the subject of death. He's not concerned with their hatred of death because he hates death. He's concerned with their interpretation of what death means for them ultimately when they're in the boat with the one who created the wind and the waves. You know, Paul, who's in prison facing a certain death by persecution by the Roman state, he writes the letter of Philippians and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the very best thing that could ever happen to me is the thing that happens right after the moment I breathe my last breath. That's the very best thing that could happen to me is for me to depart, Paul says, and be with Christ. But the disciples, contrary to Paul who thinks that the next thing after death is the best thing that happened, that could happen, interpret their own death as a betrayal, as God betraying them, and as the worst thing that could happen for their future. Don't you care? That's a rhetorical question. They assume the answer is no. How could they assume the answer is no? They assume the answer is no because they don't share the belief of Paul in this moment. And so Jesus says to them, have you still no faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in several things he's, he's calling out from them. How about faith in the fact that I'm with you in this boat, which means that I do care. I actually left glory to be in this boat and in this storm with you. In fact, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So that's a sign that I do care, that I'm with you in the boat. But then there's also the things that the disciples had seen. They had seen 
Jesus cast demons out of tortured people, heal lepers, heal a blind person, say to a paralytic, rise up and walk. And it all happened. And they also understood, because of what they'd heard, because of what they knew, because of what they'd read in the Old Testament prophets and and stories in history, is that, 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 that God, and specifically Jesus, is a much better provider for them than the sea or the ocean is. Remember, these, most of these disciples were master fishermen. They were used to mastering the water. They knew how to navigate a boat. They knew how to catch fish. Uh, their, their assets and their expertise centered around the water. And here the water is. Here their assets and here their expertise are both letting them down and abandoning them. And Jesus is essentially saying to them, here I am. I'm right here. Do you still not believe that I will be able to love you and that I will always love you more than your assets and your expertise, more than the water that represents both? And then maybe he's subtly rebuking them for what they've already shown that they know. The fact that you guys just woke me up is an indication of two things. You know that the storm is bigger than you, and you know that I am bigger than the storm. You know that I'm the one who made the wind, and I'm the one who made the waves. And so, so you've got some faith there, and, and, and that faith is actually betraying your protest against me. Because you had faith enough to wake me. If you have faith enough to wake me up, then... You've got to understand what you're saying about me. That I can handle what you can't. That I exist to handle what you cannot. One of the commentaries said that, that Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, you think I have fallen asleep on you, but you have fallen asleep on me. That's what's going on here. And so he awakens them to what they already know and understand. That's the fear of death, but then there's also the fear of life. Remember, they're in a boat. The wind and the waves are raging, and Jesus is sleeping, and they ask him the question, don't you care that we are perishing? They don't say, don't you care that we might perish? They say, don't you care that we are perishing, which means they're planning on death. They are planning for for these to be their last few moments. Remember, this is significant. They are fishermen. They're professionals. They're used to having mastery even over rough water. And now what they're doing is they're admitting, we never really had control over the water. That, that, That feeling of control that we've had in our best seasons, in our most successful catch, That feeling of control was just an illusion. See, we thought that we had mastered things, but but the fact of the matter is that we would have never experienced any progress or any safety had not God been watching over us in our most successful days, ensuring our safety and protection and flourishing. 
They're admitting that no amount of human skill, expertise, or critical mass can protect them from the wind and the waves. This is true of us as well. It's true of us. That's why the writer of the Atlantic says we're all worried. We're worried. We're afraid of life in general. And and if we're honest, we're also afraid of life in Christ. How about life in general? So the front man for the, the rock band The Doors, Jim Morrison, he said something really insightful. He said, it's strange that people fear death because life hurts a lot more than death does. It's strange that people fear death because life hurts a lot more than death does. Maybe the disciples' greatest fear is not being dead. Maybe their greatest fear is what they have to go through in order to get there. Maybe that's what they're most afraid of, not not dying, but, but living. Life is painful, and then you die. There are many versions of that statement. Another version of it is what the disciples say themselves. We are, not we might, we are perishing. And the moment that each and every one of us can acknowledge that and say that, again, repeat after me, we are perishing. It's such a healthy acknowledgement. There's a storm in every heart, and, and that storm rages even when the water around us feels still. You know, Madonna, or I'm sorry, not Madonna, Lady Gaga, there, there's stories like this from Madonna as well, especially from her Vogue uh, interview, but I'm going to talk about Lady Gaga here for a second. I saw a video clip not long ago of Lady Gaga backstage at Madison Square Garden, peak of success, performing in New York City. She's about to go out on the stage, and she's broken down in tears. And she said this, I still sometimes feel like a loser kid in high school, and I just have to pick myself up so that I can get through this day and be for my fans what they need for me to be. I'm fighting for every kid that's like me, that felt like I felt, and that feels like I feel. I just want to be a queen for them, and sometimes I don't feel like one. This one takes me back to the book of Ecclesiastes, where you've got a man with great wealth, with many houses and gardens and pools, many women, fame, fortune, and everything that goes with it, as Freddie Mercury once sang with that masterful voice of his. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, all of it is vapor. It's chasing after the wind. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It has an end date, just like I do. Control is an illusion. So we're afraid of life in general, but we're also, if we're honest, afraid of life in Christ. You know, which do we fear the most? Being on the shore without Jesus or being in the boat in the middle of the storm with him? Do we really want to live closely to Jesus? You know, C.S. Lewis's depiction of Aslan, you know, comes to mind, that, that famous statement about Aslan the lion 
You know, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, maybe the disciples are afraid not only of being in the boat, but being in the boat with him. Because of what he requires of us. He requires us to trust him enough to act on that trust. You have shared with our church once about a conversation I was in with a friend who does not identify as a Christian and, and who actually very transparently said he wishes that he could become one, but he realized that if he became a Christian, he would have to forgive his father for the hurts that his father had inflicted upon him. Following Christ is a grind sometimes because he asks us to do impossible things. You know, others say, I, I'd want to I'd be in the boat with Jesus, but then I would have to confess my sins, not only to Jesus, but to a few other people like the scriptures encourage, because that's where healing happens in community. But if I confess my sins, then I might lose people's respect. Here's the irony of that. When you confess your sins in a group of trusted friends, you actually gain their respect instead of losing it. And yet we fear losing respect. Or if I get in the boat with Jesus, that means that I will have to turn outward with a life of generosity. And I'm just flat out scared to be generous. And so like the rich young ruler, I walk away. And I walk away sad. Or if I get into the boat with Jesus, I will actually be morally bound to discipline my children. And if I, if I discipline my children, then they might not like me. And if they don't like me, that will feel like death. Or if I get in the boat with Jesus, that means I'm going to have to go on record that I believe in a person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God but through him. I'll be labeled as being too exclusive and narrow-minded. Or if I get in the boat, I'll have to go on record that I believe that he will come to judge the living and the dead, as the scriptures say. That marriage is for one man and one woman, for life, and sex is only for marriage in that context. Imagine the friends I would lose and the scorn I would receive if I went on record for believing that. Or if I get in the boat with Jesus, I have to go on record as believing in the miracles like the virgin birth and the resurrection from the dead and Jesus walking on water and turning water into wine and people will think I'm silly and anti-scientific. Here's the thing, though, if, if he created the laws of the universe, doesn't he have the power to suspend those laws in order to make a point, to show us that he's there, like this miracle right here, rebuking nature, seriously? Confronting creation, speaking to a hurricane as if the hurricane was a child. You know, Tim Keller says that you know, Jesus is literally saying, to the storm, hush, be still. And that's exactly how you talk to a child when the child is out of line and being disobedient. We look at the storm as death and, and God looks at the storm as a little bully 
on the playground and God sends the bully to the corner of the room with a word. It brings us to the last kind of fear and that's the fear of God. This is the fear that calms all other fears. You know, <laughs> Jesus says to the weather, you guys, he says to the weather, be still. And the weather is still. And, and the sea is like a sea of glass around that little boat. And the disciples, it says, after that, are filled not only with fear, but with great fear. If you go back to the original, it, it literally says that they're filled with fear, fear. With phobos, phobos. Phobia, phobia. The word is repeated twice. Who is this, they say, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Turns out they have even more fear in the calm than they had in the storm because now they realize they're contending not only with the storm but the one who created wind and waves and who has jurisdiction and control and power over wind and waves at all times. But what does Jesus do? He sends them out. You know, in the days and years ahead, he sends them out into more storms. And he asks them to confront demons, to heal diseases, to, to, to fight poverty, to preach the gospel even though political tyrants will punish them and eventually persecute and kill them for doing so. They have to deal with Jesus' death. They ultimately have to deal with their own death. But each subsequent storm that Jesus leads them into and eventually out of prepares them and strengthens them and bolsters their courage for the next one. And by the time that they all get to the place of their actual death, 10 of the 12 who were in this boat with Jesus ended up dying as martyrs for their faith, willing to go to the death, courageous to the death, for the sake of the king. The other two were Judas, whose life ended in tragedy, and John, who died in exile as an old man in prison for his faith. How did they get such courage? These, these scared men, how did such courage develop? It finally sunk in that the most important thing about the storm the most ultimate thing about the storm is not what they're dealing with, but who they're dealing with in the storm. He's strong and he's for them. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, you guys know that I am the true Jonah, right? And this is Jesus referring to the Old Testament prophet Jonah. And he says, one greater than Jonah, referring to himself, is now here. The stories are so similar. You've got the, the prophet and you've got Jesus sleeping in the boat. You've got a, a massive storm that, that emerges at sea that threatens the people in the boat. And, and the others cry out, one group to Jonah, the other group to Jesus, we are perishing, do something, call on your God. And the solution in both instances was for Jonah and, and Jesus in different ways to be tossed into the storm alone. When Jonah was tossed in the storm, when Jesus was tossed into the storm alone, that's when calm set in. There's a fundamental difference, though. 
Jonah was willing to die and face the storm of death because of his hatred. He would rather die than preach the good news of the gospel to the Ninevites whom he despised. He'd rather die than see the Ninevites become friends to his God. But Jesus, on the other hand, was willing to be tossed into the storm of death, not because of hatred, but because of love. Hatred for sin. It's compelled by his love for people and for sinners. Don't you care we are perishing? You better believe he does. Remember the irony of that statement. Jesus came because we are perishing. That's the reason why he came. God so loved the world that he gave. He saved us from our past. Micah 7.19 talks about how he has cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea so that he would never have to cast us into the depths of the sea. And then our future, Revelation 21, talking about the new heaven and the new earth. It says, there, there will no longer be any sea. Speaking in metaphor there, he says, there will, meaning there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. So I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon a second announcement, and uh, it's really kind of a strange one. You know, last Sunday we introduced Micah Edmondson uh, as uh, uh, one who will be the newest pastor on our staff planting a cross-cultural congregation of CPC uh, in the city of Nashville in future days. Uh, We actually haven't made a proper introduction of Nathan Tasker yet uh, as our new director of music, liturgy, and the arts. And, you know, this whole uh, process that led us to Nate began with the question, how do you replace Lynn Hodges, who has faithfully and effectively served Christ Presbyterian Church's music ministry for the good part of 30 years? And the answer to that question was and is, you don't, because you can't. And so what we did was we came up with a list of criteria of what we were looking for, and we were going to look at several candidates, and Nate was one of them. We wanted a skilled musician who uh, personally believes in Christ Presbyterian's philosophy of ministry around worship in the arts. We wanted a deep well with a deep formed faith. That's Nate Tasker. We wanted someone with the demeanor of a pastor who can pastor the musicians and the artists and the choir and, 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 and when that person leads on Sundays, hopefully in person soon, please, yes. Uh, they can pastor the congregation. And with that, a person who has been and who lives every day where they are trying to lead us on Sundays. That's Nathan Tasker. Uh, You know, before we hired him, three different people reached out from our community. One was uh, Andrew Osinga, who's a skilled musician, Nashville musician in his own right, said, "You, you have to just stop the process and hire Nate. And he articulated 20 different reasons why And then Andrew sent me a recording of a podcast interview that Nate did with Andrew on Andrew's podcast called The Pivot. Now, if you receive my uh, pastor emails, you should have gotten a link to that interview 
in your inbox just yesterday on Saturday. Go back to your email and get that link or shoot us an email and we'll send you the link if for some reason that didn't arrive in your inbox. Um, but one of the things that struck me, oh, by the way, the others were Missy Wallace, who's done a, a bunch of work with Nate, who also directs the art house in Nashville. And, um, you know, they've, they've done a lot of collaboration around faith and work as Missy was launching NIFW as the founder of NIFW. Of course, Missy has gone uh, and transitioned to serve with Redeemer City to City in New York from Nashville, still part of our community, and Rosewyn Brooks is, is, is her successor now. And the third person was Russ Ramsey, who goes way back uh, with Nate as well. And all of them were saying, for all of these reasons and all these criteria you have, Nate is the person. But one thing I didn't realize until I listened to that interview uh, with Andy Osinga as he was interviewing Nate is that Nate is a man who has had to wrestle with the implications of the storms of life and of death itself uh, in several different ways. And that's Nate's story to tell. Uh, and maybe he'll tell it to us over time here in our community. Or you can go back and listen to that interview with Andy Osinga on The Pivot. Uh, but that interview was what pushed me over the edge and said, I, if I can get him, this is the guy I want uh, on our team for our church, uh, but selfishly, uh, I want somebody to walk with who believes these things maybe even a little bit more than I do because I need that kind of shepherding. He's a man who's been formed in and through the storm. He knows how to face dying, which means he is exceedingly qualified to help us face living. And so I'm going to invite us all now to sing one of my favorite hymns that Nate and team are going to lead us in. And this also happens to be one that Nate enjoys himself and has lived. So let's stand again in our living rooms and sing together. <laughs> 